Hey guys, as coders and billers, we get it. Healthcare compliance can be a hassle, inconvenient, and a headache that never goes away. That's why they've developed EpiCompliance, an easy-to-use software that helps you stay up-to-date and on track with ever-changing requirements of healthcare compliance. This cloud-based software covers HIPAA, privacy and security, OSHA, and the ACA, OIG, Medicare, Waste, Fraud, and Abuse compliance requirements. It includes forms, policies, tasks, and mandated compliance training, all in one easy-to-use interface. Do you need to send and organize your business associate agreements to your clients? You can do that with EpiCompliance through their Business Associate Center. And most importantly, in our profession, EpiCompliance covers you with billing and coding for waste, fraud, and abuse compliance. Don't risk getting on the CMS, HHS, OIG list of excluded individuals and entities, which is a permanent record on the internet. Ready to stay up to date and compliant every month with EpiCompliance? You have to do it. Did I mention it's required by law? You might as well do it right with EpiCompliance. Right now, Life as a Coder podcast listeners can save 20% on their subscription by visiting epicompliance.com forward slash Ozark and using the discount code Ozark20. That's epicompliance.com forward slash O-Z-A-R-K and use the discount code Ozark20. That's O-Z-A-R-K-2-0. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series, brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance, discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello, and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara, and I am your host today. I am the host of the Life as a Coder podcast series, and our goal, of course, always to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management. And of course, if you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today, and uh, we want you to, of course, hit that subscribe button and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We do have a disclaimer that our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on our years of experience in the coding and billing industry, and our goal is to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. Uh, Of course, uh, today we're talking about coding with authority and orthopedic reminders. We, of course, wanted to uh, bring this topic out because in my years of experience, my almost 20 years as of next year in healthcare, I have come to the conclusion that there are a lot of, there's a lot of information out there, right? A lot of things uh, that we can, of course, learn and benefit from, from our fellow colleagues. There's um, consultants out there, there's blogs everywhere. But as a coder, those, you go through a program, you learn how to code, right? You learn from what? You learn from your coding books, right? The official guidelines that have been given to us as coders. And from time to time, you know, we do get out there and we research. Um, when Google came about, of course, it became our friend, but it also can be uh, detrimental to us if we get the wrong information. So it's really important that we find accurate, complete information, and that can only be found by really truly sticking to our official guidelines, right? So we have our official ICD-10-CM official guidelines for reporting. 
we have our CPT, uh, the current professional um, you know, version, uh, CPT-4, that is published by the American Medical Association. And then we have our uh, HCPCS, our HICS-PICS book, right? That's published by a CMS is, of course, the one of the operating parties of that. They, of course, put out those quarterly updates for the HICS-PICS manual, the Healthcare Common Procedural Coding System. So if you were to look in your ICD-10-CM manual, for instance, you would, of course, discover uh, the, the operating parties, the cooperating parties that approve the ICD-10-CM coding guidelines, uh, and that, of course, uh, you know, we have a HEMA, we have the American Hospital Association, and you have those other um, areas there, those other uh, entities that come together and they, as a group, um, they decide on what should be or shouldn't be part of that code set um, for reimbursement purposes. Uh, the official guidelines themselves are approved by those cooperating parties. So again, that's AHIMA, the American Hospital Association, CMS is involved in that, and the National Center for Health Statistics. These coding guidelines are officially um, put into place by them. Um, we're talking about the guidelines themselves, right? Not the codes. Um, and then the articles that are published, maybe by HEMA, if you're in a HEMA member, certified a HEMA member, even if you're not certified with a HEMA, because they are one of the cooperating parties of the IC10CM guidelines, it's always a good idea uh, to get out there and, of course, see what they have to say on matters, um, because they are considered an authority. A coding clinic by the American Hospital Association, great information. It is considered an authority when it comes to coding guidance, coding guidelines. We have our official guidelines that, of course, they're one of those cooperating parties for, but when it comes to their coding clinic articles, maybe you're a coder, a biller, and you're sending questions to them, those questions may end up um, in their coding clinic, and those answers that they provide are going to be based on the official guidance that they're going to provide. So it's, they're considered an authority. And of course, it's always a good idea to look at CPT assistant because since the American Medical Association or the AMA maintains the CPT code set, uh, they do have their, of course, CPT assistant that is an official source for guidance on CPT procedural coding. So when you're coding for E&M services or you're coding for surgery, radiology, anything in the CPT code set, you're going to want to, of course, reference that CPT assistant. If you don't have access to it, it's usually not that expensive um, to get the app, which I love. I love the app that lets me um, look in my coding book. It says see CPT assistant article this year, this month, and then I can find some helpful information on that topic. Um, it is our responsibility as coders. So for instance, if we are coding for the diagnostic portion of our chart, uh, we have to understand those rules, those coding conventions, those guidelines. Uh, I do a lot of education on the guidelines because uh, I feel like some come to me and they just feel overwhelmed by the guidelines. And I don't want people to feel that way because I feel that if you take your time and you are patient with yourself, and you understand, get organized with those guidelines, it's not a matter of memorizing things. It's about knowing your books well enough to where you have a situation, you have a scenario, you have to code, 
you know where you need to go, right? If it's diabetes, you know, it's chapter four of the chapter specific guidelines. Um, if it has to do with a fracture and injury, you know, it's chapter 19. So getting familiar with what chapter of ICD-10 your code set is part of, but you're not without help because at the top of every page in your tabular section, of course, you're going to find the chapter that you're in. And then if you have, of course, labeled or marked in your book somewhere where to get to those official guidelines, those chapter specific guidelines, you're going to find that easily to reference, right? Um, and I know there are a lot of things out there that are great to streamline our processes. Sometimes you can find some really helpful information when it comes to our encoders, right? I love my encoder. I use Encoder Pro. It makes it really nice. I can type in a description of a disease and it'll pull up several options for me. And I have to, of course, quickly choose which one is, is uh, preferable. It does take me to this page that shows me all of the helpful information. But I do want to caution against only using encoders. It really should be used as a way to help you fully establish your code, maybe to look at some reimbursement guidance, uh, things like that. But when it comes to ICD-10 coding, I do recommend using your books as the official source. Uh, there are some helpful information on those encoders uh, that can help you maybe understand a little bit better, or maybe you're looking for an LCD policy uh, for a procedure. And so, yeah, you're going to use the LCD policy link on the encoder. It's going to tell you there is an LCD policy out there, a local coverage determination policy out there. And it's going to tell you, yes, this is what we understand. These are the appropriate diagnosis codes, uh, the coverage guidelines for this procedure. So we take that information, we share it with our providers, we help them to see that, yes, uh, this is how our, the insurance will interpret uh, paying for this procedure if you have medical necessity and you've met any of these guidelines here. But again, it shouldn't be the only thing we use to code from. We want to use our books. I always take my encoder. I look at what it tells me and I confirm that information in my coding book. Uh, we don't want to miss things like code first, code additional. We don't want to miss our coding conventions like our excludes one and our excludes two. We don't want to uh, miss any of those inclusion notes that tell us uh, certain things, right? Very important. They do not replace our coding knowledge and our coding books, right? The internet is full of information. Uh, we've seen, of course, in the last year and a half, there is a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to healthcare. Uh, and, you know, lots of information is out there on the internet, but it doesn't mean that it's accurate. So just like with anything else, when it comes to coding, Coders always should be very careful where they get their information because this information is going on a claim. Uh, the information you're pulling that from is a legal document. That medical record is a legal document. And if you're going to take that information and put it on a claim form and expect to get paid from that information from the government, for instance, Medicare and government payer, they're going to expect that you have done your due diligence and you have researched as much as you possibly can from accurate sources. So CMS, of course, if you're going to bill them, Medicare, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you would bet that Medicare and Medicaid is going to expect that you've read their policies, you have read their internet-only manual, for instance, you've read um, any updates to uh, those code sets you're reporting, and you understand fully what you're responsible for, um, what the patient is responsible for, and that you are 
clearly uh, understanding those documentation guidelines. Uh, it also is great too, as a coder and a biller, office manager, facility director, whatever your role is in the business side of healthcare, do you know that the CPT code changes are effective January 1st of every year? Are you using current year codes, right? Uh, for the HCPCS, the HCPCS codes, they do change and they're effective uh, January 1st every year, but CMS does publish quarterly updates. So are you looking at those? And then of course, ICD-10, CM and PCS code changes are effective October 1st of every year. So we are currently approaching that deadline, right? Even though we don't use our 2022 CPT and HCPCS codes till January 1st, we have to officially start using our ICD-10-CM and PCS 2022 codes, right? So we have to be aware of when those start. That is very important. So are you taking the time? Are you looking up, up these things? Um, I also want to point out too, there's a lot of helpful links. I'm going to put in our show notes, uh, things that I look to from time to time um, to help me understand, you know, what is currently happening in healthcare? What are the, the updates? and um, the actual HCPCS quarterly updates have zip files, right? And they're dated when they're updated. That's very important to access those items. Really important stuff. And then of course, uh, when it comes to CPT, you can always check the AMA and they have their updates. Um, their errata that's, that's completed, right? Uh, and I like to talk about too, uh, when it comes to uh, the American Medical Association, I'm sorry, CMS is what I meant. CMS has some really great information on uh, they have little guide booklets I like to look at. So for instance, Evaluation Management Services Guide. I love this, this document. It's a PDF uh, version of that. And I will, of course, uh, give you a copy of that in the show notes as well for you to download. Uh, but it has those updates and it'll tell you it's been updated for the 2021 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule Final Rules and Link. So it does say it was, of course, copyrighted in 2020. That's when that was put into place. But um, it is effective for the year 2021, and you'll always see that update there. And you want to always reference that. For evaluation and management services, you know, in 2021, when that came about, the AMA had, of course, they, of course, owned the rights to those codes that they're the ones that put those out. But again, your insurance payers will adopt or they won't, right? They may or may not adopt those guidelines. There are some private payers out there come to my attention. There are some, you know, workers comp or LNI plans in some states that still do not recognize the 2021 guidelines. So we're left with using what is currently in place, right? Our 95 and 97 guidelines. So we have to be super organized as coders, don't we? We have to always be on our toes when it comes to understanding which guidelines set to use. Because if we're coding for maybe a hospital code set, right? Our 99221 to 23, or anything outside of the 99202 to 05 or to 15, then we have to revert. It's always a good idea to have binders. I know not everyone's a binder fan, but I am a, a binder girl. You know, I like to have that, if, whether it's a binder in my Google Docs and I have folders or it's printed out, I like to have some place I can go, one place that I have all of my documents secure. I know what to reference. So if I have a question about the 95 guidelines uh, and that's what my facility I'm working for, maybe I'm educating a physician and uh, their facility uh, recognizes and they want us to code or audit based on this um, 
set of guidelines, then I have that handy. I can do control F. I can find that guideline and show my provider where I'm getting this information from. Um, in that uh, evaluation management service guide, it has all of the helpful information you're going to need. It talks about all areas of evaluation management because so many of us work in so many areas. Some of us are just in the office, so we have our official outpatient guidelines. Some of us work in the hospital or both. We're hybrid, right? We have our providers that go to the hospital, and then some of them, of course, are in the office. And then maybe we have split shared services. Maybe we work, we work for a physician who's a surgeon, and he does a lot of consultations. Do we understand that Medicare does not accept consult codes? How do we handle that situation? Um, for those of us coding hospital services, we still have to remember how to level a, a E&M service with our history, our exam, and our MDM, which is a little bit different than the 2021 guidelines. Do we know the differences? And if you're going to be joining us for our upcoming event, uh, don't forget that coming up soon, we have our official free E&M event coming up. Um, that is going to be on uh, September 28th. That's Tuesday at three o'clock. So it's coming up shortly, uh, pretty soon, you'll be able to join us for that free event. We have a lot of people registered and we're so excited to have a lot of consultants come together and help uh, those that are need help with E&M services, understanding as much as possible. So that's just something helpful to keep in mind. One thing that I talk about with documentation, for instance, and where to get your official documentation standards, CMS is really where you want to go, right? Um, they do kind of, I say, drive the bus with a lot of things. Since so many payers, um, you know, follow them, it's always a good idea to get your information from them. But of course, private payers have coverage guidelines as well. So they'll tell you what they need um, documented in order to get something paid. Uh, but for E&M services, CMS has put out specifically some general principles that are helpful, uh, that are they recommend, and they re will require you to have the reason for the encounter, a relevant history and physical exam, assessment, clinical impression, diagnosis, a plan of care. You have to have your legible data service, legible information to prove who is the author of that document, and of course, other information as well that's listed there. Very important. And so there's a lot of great information in that, um, of course, that booklet that I recommend using. Um, it gives you a breakdown of, of the guidelines. Uh, you know, the official guidelines you can download for 95, 97 has helpful information. And I love this document. Like this is like my go-to when I'm teaching because there are several elements, right, of maybe HPI, for instance. So when I'm going there, it tells me examples of each part of HPI. It tells me examples um, of how I can interpret that uh, for a brief versus an extended HPI, what I should expect to have, how many elements I should have. Review of systems, it gives me examples of that. Uh, it gives me examples of what a chief complaint would mean, and review of systems, what you would expect to see. Um, and then for the past family and social history, it gives me all of that. Uh, and then the exam, it gives you a lot of information on the exam, uh, the different types of examinations, problem focused, expanded problem focused, detailed and comprehensive. Uh, and of course, your local MAC carriers will always have uh, maybe a variation on how you can look at the exam piece, right? Because depending on if you're doing 95 or 97, whether you're looking at organ systems or you're looking at bullet systems, then you may have that difference there, right? Uh, many of your MAC carriers will even have maybe some separate specialty uh, type 
um, sheets, audit sheets you can download that are for that specialty. So be aware of that. And as we know, evaluation management um, for MDM is slightly different for 95, 97 than it is for 2021. So do you understand how to come to those conclusions? Uh, you're going to learn that at our next uh, next uh, episode or our next event. So I'm hoping that many of you can attend that. And that's just some of the basics I wanted to go over. Uh, I'm not talking about EM today, but really just talking about coding with authority, right? Do you know where to go to get the, gu- the guidelines and the information you need that is an authority in our field? Uh, if a provider comes to you and says, show me this in writing, have you done your due diligence? Have you found that in writing for them? And you have that backup to show them, yes, I got my information from a reputable source. I have the resource I can, of course, put you, bring you to that's going to help you with that. And at the end of that booklet, I love so much is all of the resources and the links, direct links to the Medicare claims processing manual, the official guidelines, the uh, physician fee schedule for outpatient services, the final rule. All of these things are references that Medicare put, uh, CMS put in their booklet and their guide to help us see from the authority where they get their information as well. They also look to other uh, sources uh, that come together and they make sure everyone has the authoritative sources that they need to find the information that they need. And then, of course, another document that I love that they put out, of course, is complying with medical record documentation requirements. So, yes, they give you the official E&M got document documentation guidelines, but then they also give you another document. It's a fact sheet that I love. I'll put that in my show notes as well. And of course, we'll tell you the current update, January 2021, that they have updated this. And it gives you specific uh, information like um, how to understand documentation for maybe physical therapy, uh, DMEs, and and other types of uh, documents. So that's just some helpful information as well. Lots of resources. And my favorite thing that I love to do is sign up for the MLN articles because every time an update happens, something's been added, revised. Maybe there's an update to the final rule or something. You know, I'm going to get that email from the MLN. I'm going to get those uh, those updates uh, and those emails telling me that, yes, we've got some new information coming at you. So we want to make sure we have that. So we have that information. We know exactly where to go for the correct information. That's what we want to get to the bottom of, right? So we go back and we think about uh, the information that we need to have. Um, it's really helpful, isn't it? So next, I want to talk about one of my favorite things, and that, of course, is the NCCI manual. How many of us are familiar with the NCCI manual? That's one of the things I want to talk about. I love my NCCI manual, um, and it's you know one of those things that we have to reference, right? We have to understand um, all about that, don't we? So when it comes to our NCCI manual, there are things that we have to understand. Uh, when you go to that manual, um, you're going to see, you know, several sections, several chapters that reference that manual. And I specifically am going to pick on today, I'm going to pick on our orthopedic guidelines, right? So uh, let's talk about those next. So for our NCCI manual, it is, of course, chapter four for our orthopedic guidelines. Uh, There is lots of information in there. Um, Because I will be speaking at Decision Health Conference in Orlando in November, I decided to give a little preview, right, of some of the things I'll be talking about in the orthopedic world. And of course, I'm going to start with arthroscopies because 
never fails. It's always a question that people have when coding for orthopedic scopes. And there is a NCCI procedure to procedure edit code pair uh, that tells us on our shoulders, for instance, on our shoulders, it tells us that you, if two of your codes are, have a bundle in place. So that means that when you download that procedure to procedure file um, for Medicare, the first column, of course, is a payable code, right? The second column is that other code you're trying to build that it's hitting up against it and saying, nope, can't do it unless you have a modifier. But there is a specific information in the uh, NCCI manual that we have to follow that says that you cannot bypass those codes with a procedure to procedure modifier when two procedures are performed on the ipsilateral shoulder. And that means that that is the same shoulder, right? Uh, so it doesn't matter if it says you can use a modifier. It's saying in the NCCI manual, if that happens, if you have two codes um, that have described two shoulder arthroscopy procedures, they shall not be bypassed with an NCCI procedure to procedure modifier when they're on the same shoulder. That's specifically from NCCI. So if your payer accepts that guideline from the NCCI manual, we know Medicare does, but if your payer does as well, you cannot do it. Um, the only time, of course, it can be bypassed is, of course, if that other procedure is performed on a contralateral shoulder, according to that policy manual. And that means the opposite shoulder. <laughs> very rarely does it happen. So I have to tell my provider, no go. But I also like to be very transparent with them and let them know as much as they need to know to satisfy them to, so they understand what's actually happening. So for instance, these two codes, they know they can't be built together. They've already decided that in that first code, we are giving you enough of an RVU value to cover these, this incidental procedure that we know you may and you may end up doing it, but we're paying you enough in this RVU value. We valued it that high because we anticipate you might do this minor procedure here and there, but you are getting paid for what you're doing. You're getting the full value for that procedure and any other procedures that may be done at the same time but you're getting the full value of that. And that's how I explain it to my providers because it's true. That's how they come up with those RVU values. They anticipate there are going to be some of these incidental procedures that are going to be done at the same time, but you're already in there with the scope. Your intent is this procedure, right? You may have to do this to complete your procedure, but it's intended that you're going to do that while you're in there. So they're not going to give you any more money for that. That's the bottom line. There are some exceptions, you know, there are some, are some arthroscopic debridements that can't be reported separately because they're on the same joint and things like that. So read all of those uh, guidelines there. If you code arthroscopies uh, frequently and you're not reading the NCCI manual every year, or you're not reminding yourself every year, educating your provider every year, explaining to them some of these things, uh, you can start to see a lot of denials. Um, and you might try to appeal some things and keep spinning your wheels because you're getting denied. And a lot of times if you appeal, they'll send back to a letter saying this is not appealable based on this uh, course policy. And then I have, of course, something I like to talk about, and that is our meniscectomies, the knees, and the chondroplasty. This is something that is so widely misunderstood uh, because there are so many things out there that are put out that aren't from the authorities. Now, I love all my consultants out there and I, I trust a lot of them because I know that they're getting their information from an authority. 
So I encourage you, if you're going to look at a blog, you're going to look into a, a consultant somewhere, a company that's going to come in and educate your staff, your providers, please make sure that you can confirm that the information that they got for you was from an authority that we accept as an authority in uh, the business of healthcare. So in that manual, of course, it also talks about number six, under arthroscopy. It talks about the knees. Now there is a code, right, for removal of a loose body or a foreign body, 29874. And there's a code for a chondroplasty, which is a surgical procedure. It's going to repair and reshape that damaged cartilage in the joint, the knee. Um, it will smooth that degenerative cartilage and trim any unstable flaps of cartilage. So that's what it's for. So in the description of 29877, it says arthroscopy knee surgical for debridement, shaving of articular cartilage and in parentheses, it says chondroplasty. So it's telling you that that's a chondroplasty. That's part of that code. It's the debridement and shaving of that cartilage to, of course, reshape it, to repair it. Uh, they may trim some of those edges. It is bundled to our meniscectomy and uh, repair codes. Uh, so either the removal or the repair. So that's our code range 29866 to 29889. It says they're in the policy manual, in the NCCI manual. You shall not report the 29874 and the 29877 with those codes. But in comes our exception. Um, some people have decided that they're going to interpret using the GO289 in this instance. And I'm going to explain the purpose and the intent of that code. And I'm also going to explain, of course, in the ENCCI manual what it says, as well as the description from the HixPix Level 2 code. So GO289, arthroscopy of the knee, surgical, for removal of loose body, foreign body, debridement, or shaving, which is a chondroplasty, right? At the time of another surgical arthroscopy of the knee in a different compartment of the same knee. Now, if you look at the description in CPT for 29880 and 29881. So 80 is that arthroscopy, the meniscectomy is either the medial and it's the medial and lateral compartment. It also says it includes that chondroplasty. So but it also says what? Same or separate compartments. So even though GO289 says in a separate compartment of the same knee, it's not going to apply with the meniscectomy codes because that code already says that the chondroplasties include and it doesn't matter how many compartments it is, same or separate. And then we have the 81, which is either medial or lateral. So in one instance, they could be doing a meniscectomy in the medial and lateral compartment, but maybe they're doing something else, right, in the patellofemoral compartment, but does it mean that you can use a G0289 if you're doing it for a chondroplasty purpose? Because it has, it's a two-fold code, right? It is used for either removal of a loose body or for a chondroplasty. So you can use it at some times, right, but only if it doesn't conflict with the description of the code you're billing it with. So then we have the 8-1, right? Same situation, same or separate compartments. A lot of question has come into the 29882 because that is your repair code, right? So in the repair codes, it doesn't say a chondroplasty is included, 
But what happens when you try to pull up your procedure to procedure edits, you try to put in 29882 and 29877. They're bundled. And it says a modifier is not allowed to override this relationship. So you can't. So if you can't do that, why would you expect to be able to build a G0289? Doesn't matter because it's a meniscectomy procedure. There is, uh, you know, guidance out there uh, and Medicare, of course, they don't say anything specifically about not using the GO289 um, in their policy manual with the 29882, but because the chondroplasty itself is bundled with that, it makes no sense to try to take it, the GO289 and try to get it because it's going to deny it's not going to be billable. You try to appeal it. They're going to say, no, the meniscectomy and, uh, or so the, the meniscus repair and this chondroplasty, they're going to expect you to do it anyway. You're already in there in the cartilage repairing it. They're not going to give you any more money for just doing that debridement right there. Right. They're not going to do it. So that's why the, the, uh, uh, NCCI manual does say, um, towards the end, G0289 shall not be reported for removal of a loose body or foreign body um, of from the same compartment. And it said you can report it with those 8081s, but only if it's for removal of a loose body. They want you to be very clear that if it's for chondroplasty, it wouldn't be appropriate to bill with those codes. Now, I am not saying 100% legal advice, you should do it this way. I am telling you, this is what the guidelines state. This is what the NCCI manual states. My disclaimer as always, do not take what I'm telling you as legal or professional advice. I want you as a coder, as a biller to, to on your own, go to these authorities and read those policy manuals and show them to your provider and explain to them why you are not reporting this code with this code because you don't have the ability to base on the payer guidelines. We have to follow their guidelines if you want to get paid, and we don't want to go against it. Uh, you can get fined for going against uh, Medicare's guidelines. Um, and then we have some information, too, on the shoulder arthroscopy codes. Um, these, of course, uh, include limited debridement. So that's our 29822. So when it comes to our limited debridement, um, if it's performed in a different area of the same shoulder than the other procedure, we have that option, of course, um, if it's more extensive, but the limited doesn't matter. It's not going to be acceptable um, with that. So read those exceptions, read those paragraphs very clearly, maybe get your highlighter out, right? Get your highlighter out and try to uh, highlight the areas uh, of that policy that are going to be something you want to remember. And uh, when you code fractures, for instance, too, sometimes your provider does do those debridements, right? We have specific codes, right, for debridements at, uh, at the site of an open fracture, the 11010 to 11012. I have found doing audits and such, sometimes we in, get in the ruts and we forget our official operative report guidelines as well. When you code for an op report, you can't code from the procedure description. We have to make sure that we're looking at the body of the note and that our provider is clearly telling us how far he went in that debridement. Um, whether it's the, of course, the subcutaneous, if it's the muscle fascia bone, that will, of course, be very important when coding these in addition to our fracture code, right? 
Then we have our uh, 20670 and 20680. Oftentimes they have to remove internal fixation devices, maybe. Um, uh, if they're though part of uh, an integral part of that procedure, whereas they can't complete that procedure, right? Unless they remove it, it's part of it, right? So if they do a revision um, of an open fracture, maybe for a non-union or malunion, it requires removal of that pin. So it's not going to be separately portable according to the NCCI manual. Something to remember um, in that aspect. And these are just some kind of reminders I like to point out. And of course, um, I can't forget, I love, love, love to share information about ICD-10-CM guidelines. So when it comes to ICD-10-CM guidelines, we can't forget, can't forget to always watch for those. So I'm going to talk a little bit about ICD-10-CM and some reminders uh, that go way back to 2015 when we first got ICD-10. When it comes to fractures, specificity is very, very important. We can't, can't ignore our specificity. And sometimes our providers, you know, they're doing the best they can. Maybe they need a little bit of help, right? A little bit of assistance. So I'm going to put in my show notes just uh, what the CMS's official guidance on ICD-10 for orthopedics. Um, it's, you know, back from 2015, but the information is still valuable. The documentation assistance and reminders are still great information. So do we have the type of the fracture? Is it open? Is it closed? Pathological? Is it having to do with a neoplastic disease? Was there some kind of tumor or cancer there? Is it a stress fracture? These are all words that we want to see so we can appropriately go to the right section of ICD-10-CM, right? Because remember, pathological or a medically uh, appropriate or it, something that was uh, caused by a disease, right? is going to be in the M codes, but if it's injury, it's going to be in the S codes, right? So we have to know our type in that way. What's the pattern? Is it comminuted? Is it oblique, segmental, spiral, transverse? These are all terms that we want to be aware of. Uh, what is the episode of care? The encounter, right? Is it initial, subsequent, or sequelae? Is there healing? If it's a subsequent encounter, is it normal healing? delayed healing, non-union or malunion. Those are terms we wanna see. Obviously the location is crucial, right? Is it the shaft, the head, the neck? Is it distal, proximal? These are all words that orthopedic coders and coders in general should know. We use these terms in other parts of our anatomy. Displacement. This is important. There is a guideline, right, that tells us that if it uh, doesn't specify displaced, we can code uh, to displaced. Uh, but we want to see the word non-displaced if that is accurate. We want to code from the non-displaced fracture section if that is really what is the case. Obviously, we're going to code displaced without that information. Um, some of our uh, codes require a classification, like the Gastillo-Anderson uh, classification or Salter-Harris and have those different types, right, that we have to use. Um, are there any complications? Um, where is there a result of trauma? Um, things like that, right? So very important uh, things to keep in mind. And then we're coding maybe for arthritis. There is a need for increased specificity. Uh, we don't want to just code osteoarthritis if it just says arthritis. We have to know if it's primary, secondary, is there a rheumatoid factor? There's a lot of different types of arthritic conditions that can happen. 
you have to know. Um, subtypes, laterality, uh, what joints are involved, uh, any other complications that might be involved. Is there infection? There's lots of things that we need to know. And so being familiar with the options and the words in your code sets can help you with that. Uh, so just be aware of that. Now, we often do have to code from our external cause index, don't we? Unfortunately, right? Not my favorite index, not my favorite thing to maneuver through. Um, so a lot of times I will use my encoder software to help me locate at least where I'm supposed to be. And then I confirm that, right? Um, but I also uh, want to encourage you, if you're going to use the index, think of, okay, if I if the patient fell, it's going to be under fall, right? If it's a, a vehicle accident, it's going to be under accident, right? There's different things you can look for. So think of, of course, how was it sustained? Was it sports? Was it a motor vehicle crash? Um, are we talking about the, um, if it's a motor vehicle, are they the driver or the passenger? Um, you know, was there any environmental exposures? Where were they? Were they at school or work? Uh, these are things that can also help with education in our intake staff, our medical assistants, or those talking to the patient. Ask them those specific questions because it does help on the coding end and making sure our claims are as accurate as possible. If we're coding for maybe uh, abuse or drug abuse, is there intentional, unintentional? Was it self-harm? Things like that. Because remember, um, even if it's not an injury, if we have to code um, one of those, um, you know, drug interaction codes or poisonings, we can use our external cause codes for those as well. They're not just for S codes. They're also used on T codes and anything that will require us to explain how something happened or where a person was when that encounter occurred. So those are very um, helpful things. So I'm going to give you an example. I know it's uh, audio education, but I'm sure you can visualize this. A patient has a left knee strain injury that occurred on a private recreational playground when a child landed incorrectly from a trampoline. Can we visualize this? I'm sure I can. I maybe as a child did the same thing myself. So the first thing I'm going to code is my injury. I have to code my S code. External cause codes never go first on a claim. We always code our S code first. So I'm going to code this. I looked up, of course, strain in the index, and I'm going to code that as S86.812A, strain of other muscles and tendons at lower leg level, left leg, initial encounter. The A is for the initial encounter. External cause code, they fell from, right, um, that playground equipment, because it says that they landed incorrectly. So that is indicating a fall, right? That's how it's coded. We can code the place of occurrence as recreational area if it's not specified that we have the other option. Um, and then we have an activity as trampoline jumping. So those are four codes that I can report on my claim because I had enough information there. So getting the right information is very important. These are just some things I wanted to point out. And when it comes to follow-up visits, if there's a fracture, remember we have our seventh character to describe our uh, subsequent visits. So we're not going to code, we're not going to code our Z4789 for aftercare for orthopedic visit because there is a specific code to tell us whether they're in active treatment or they're in a routine healing phase. So we don't wanna be confusing those things. And just some helpful reminders on those. Now, 
I do want to talk a little bit about some of our upcoming events for those of you that are on today. I'm really excited about all of the great uh education we have coming up. And uh, we are going to do a special orthopedic uh, discussion group on October 12th. So we hope you can join us for that. I'll have that, of course, in our show notes as well. Um, we're really going to get together those that have questions about orthopedics and scenarios that they're struggling with, because we're going to offer again an orthopedic uh, conference in 2022. We had a, a huge success, a huge um, attendance at our 2021 conference. It's all virtual, by the way so that you can benefit from that, invite your practice managers, even your physicians that want to attend. We're going to have some great speakers. We have, of course, uh, some excellent education to bring to you. We're going to try to cover all areas of orthopedics, even the spine, uh, from head to toe if possible, and we can get uh, enough speakers to join us. Uh, We're going to talk about that. It's just to talk about it. We want to get information about what you're needing so we can plan this conference for you in 2022. We already have in the works, we have our OBGYN summit coming on February 12th. We have, of course, Betty Hovey, one of my favorite consultants out there who used to work at AAPC and Karen Zubko. So she's, a, of course, owns her own company now. Um, and so we're going to love having her there. She's going to talk to us about ICD-10-CM guidelines and specialty-specific evaluation and management interpretation for for OBGYN. And then in 2022, we also have cardiology and cardiovascular coming April 23rd. And that is going to be, of course, hosted by the incomparable Terry Fletcher of Terry Fletcher Consulting. And I want to give her a huge shout out. She inspired me to start this podcast. And I'm a huge fan of her podcast, award-winning podcast. She and I think alike a lot of times. So believe it or not, we were talking last week about some things coming up and some, we were talking about orthopedics, for instance, and we both decided, hey, let's talk about orthopedics. Let's talk about Cody with authority. And we both just had the same idea at the same time. It's kind of funny. So this week you're going to, of course, you're going to hear hers and mine, same topic. We both decided we're going to do our own take on it. And so I encourage you to jump over to uh, Codecast by Terry Fletcher and listen to her episode as well. I think it's going to be a great one to listen to for you. And then of course, the Pediatric Coding Summit um, is coming in May. I'm super excited for that. Uh, We do have one of my favorite people, I fangirl every time I listen to her speak. Um, and so I'm really excited to have Rhonda Buckholes coming in to talk about compliance. Uh, we are planning on having speakers on compliance for every conference in 2022. We want to cover everything for you. So we want to cover ICD-10, anatomy, CPT coding, billing and reimbursement, denials and appeals, compliance. We're going to cover everything possible at our summit so that you feel completely prepared in your specialty. And then hyper oncology is coming in June. It's one of our biggest events of the year. Um, the amazing Jordan Johnson of OncoSpark is helping to plan this one. He is Mr. Oncology, Mr. Radonk. And so uh, his company is going to be helping us with uh, planning that. And so a lot more coming our way uh, until next summer. But That's, of course, available now if you want to join or if you want to sponsor. We are accepting sponsors at this time. So, you know, a lot of things coming at you. We always try to educate. We want to inspire you. And like I always say, knowledge is power. Uh, The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow. Do not give up on coding. Do not give up on your dream, whatever that happens to be, whether it's in coding and billing, reimbursement, managing, whatever part of the revenue cycle you're a part of. Um, If you're on the clinical side and you're wanting to learn more about the business side 
and vice versa. Never stop that goal you have of getting to where you want to be. Recently, I, of course, made the decision to quit my corporate job. After almost 20 years being a production coder, I decided it's my time now to give back and I want to educate. I love to talk about coding and billing, but not just coding. I mean, I've been a coder for a long time, but I feel like there's so much more than just coding out there. Um, if we're in our little box, may like just be the coder. That's great. Keep doing it. It's an important skill to have. But as we move into this new phase of whatever technology brings us, and we don't want to feel like our, our jobs are in danger, but we want to learn to adapt, right? So if technology changes the way that we do coding and billing, please, please, please adapt to those changes if you want to survive this industry. Um, some of you maybe have been in the industry when we were still doing paper before we had computers, right? And so you've seen a lot of changes, right? You are the ones that have continued to adapt which is why you're still in the industry. You realize the importance of technology and how it helps us do our jobs. We're not going anywhere. There's always gonna need to be a brain behind everything. Um, computer crashes happen, you know, things happen. There's always gonna be need a human brain behind that power to tell the computer what to do, right? So you're always gonna have a job, but do you have the desire and do you have the aptitude to learn how to adapt? into those situations that may come your way. Um, so just, just keep doing it, keep trying to grow and learn. If you wanna get more certifications, the sky is the limit. We have AHIMA, we have APC as our main uh, credentialing organizations, but there are others out there as well, um, especially for compliance. Um, the government has their own compliance certification. So you have AAPC, CPCO, and then you have, of course, the, the one that is, course, by the Department of Justice. So we have so many things out there that you can reach for. Um, recently, I thought about all my years and all I've learned giving back. I think it'd be so much fun to be a expert witness. I know my fellow consultants that have done the expert witness work and it sounds super fun. So that's kind of on my radar, something for me personally, a goal of mine. So what are your goals? Tell me your goals. I want you to write to me, send me a message on my podcast app, send me a message, uh, you know, on anchor, tell me what your goals are for the future, what you want to accomplish as a coder, a biller, a manager, a physician, whatever you do in healthcare. I want to know what your goals are, what you're struggling with. What do you think the industry needs to change? That's what I'm doing this for. I want to bring those topics to the public on this podcast, talk about them, help people understand what we need to do to change things and how we can adapt to the industry. So this has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, Ozark Coding Alliance and our amazing podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Wednesday for a new episode. We'll catch you then.